Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 19 of the JewishBoston.com podcast. We have a very special podcast today. We are talking with Stephen Toblowski, who is in Dallas at the time. So the sound's going to be a little bit off because he's on the phone, but it's an amazing conversation about his book, My Adventures with God, A Personal Pentateuch. He'll be in town on May 1st at the Vilna Shul, but we talk about his book. We talk about a lot of things that aren't timely, so if you don't listen to this till afterwards, that's fine too, but it's such a great talk. We're going to go right to it. So here is Stephen Toblowski to the theme song. Hello, everyone. We are very honored to have Stephen Toblowski on the JewishBoston.com podcast today. Uh, Stephen has appeared in more than 100 movies and 200 television shows, including unforgettable roles in Mississippi Burning, Groundhog Day, and Memento. Uh, personally, I will always remember him as Dr. Werner Brandis from the 1992 film Sneakers, which I love, as well as uh, more recently as the CEO of Pied Piper, Jack Barker from HBO Silicon Valley. Uh, he's the author of The Dangerous Animals Club and the new, I think, just came out in the next in the last day or two, My Adventures with God, which is out now. And uh, you'll be able to see him at the Vilna Shul here in Boston on May 1st. Uh, hello, Stephen. Hello, Jesse. So we are very excited to talk to you. So Boston, as a uh, community, has about, they just did a recent census, has about 230,000 Jews. So that, 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 that's a lot of Jews for a very small area. That's a lot of Jews. And that's a lot of Jews, and especially where I live in the Alston Brookline area, or Baruchline, as it's uh, called. You know, I see Orthodox Jews walking around on a daily basis. But you and I both grew up in what I call the Southwest. Again, arguments about what that area is called. But you were raised in Dallas, and I was raised in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so I thought it'd be interesting to talk about what it's like being surrounded by non-Jews and how that sort of affects our Judaism going forward. It, it's interesting. It's interesting. Uh, I grew up in Oak Cliff, which is about uh, 20 miles outside of Dallas. And uh, this is not hyperbola. We had more Nazis in our community than Jews. We had three Jewish families in, our, uh, in Oak Cliff when I was growing up. So, I mean, you could count them on two hands. And, and by Nazis, I, I'm, I'm not meaning like on TV shows. I'm, t I'm talking about real Nazis. Like when uh, I was playing basketball in the sixth grade, we finished one of the games and one of the moms invited us over to their house to have uh, pimento cheese sandwiches and Pepsi Cola. We walk, into, we walk across the playing field, go across the street into their house, and in their living room, they had a portrait of Adolf Hitler Right. On, the, on the wall, and two German flags stuck on the wall, and then on a little end table in front of the fireplace, they had Stormtrooper magazine laid out like they were highlights in a, in a pediatrician's office. So I'm talking real Nazis, but, but I thought there was something kind of refreshing but creepy about the fact that they didn't feel they had to tidy up after a Bund rally. But this was kind of the area I grew If you remember, you, you sound too young to remember this, but at the time of the Kennedy assassination, Dallas, where I grew up, was also the headquarters of the American Nazi Party. So it had 
getting to the heart of, now that you know the background, getting to the heart of your question, it had two effects on me. And it had the same effect on other people that did not live on our side of town, that lived in the more Jewish part of North Dallas. And that is, we felt heroic being Jewish. Mm -hmm. So as it was enough resistance, it was enough uh, of an enemy to be able to not crumble, but to stand up and say, no, this is what I like. Even though, I have to say, we, as you know from the book, uh, my parents decided to not give us presents on Hanukkah, but to give us presents on December 25th. Yet we could not have a Christmas tree. We did not have a Hanukkah bush or Hanukkah Harry. We didn't do any of that. But I'm saying that we we were not a very uh, what practicing at home. Uh, we, we did not practice Judaism that much in our home. We were. And we weren't even that what you would call secular Jews, but I did go to a lot of religious school, and the school was 30 miles away at Temple Emmanuel. Mm-hmm. So I went to religious school all through high school. My uh, my temple was about 25 miles from my house, and so I, I grew up in a suburb of, of Tulsa called Broken Arrow, and all the Jews that were in the Tulsa area lived in Tulsa. Very few of them lived in Broken Arrow, so I was the only Jew in my school until the 11th grade, and then there were two of us out of a class of uh, out of a school of 2000 so it was very and like I was not one to shy away from my Judaism I sort of embraced it but again I was raised by New York Jews in Oklahoma so that sort of changed the the dynamic for me a little bit Uh, Uh because we were we 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 were we were different no matter what religion we were from how my parents sounded but I'm that 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 house you described like did they know you were Jewish when they invited you over no and and later on uh, they found out in my mind, you know, memory, my my stories, I attempt to be true, but not journalistically mm-hmm. true, because I was a kid, I didn't keep that many notes about time and place, but it felt like a couple weeks later, somebody found out I was a Jew, because someone on our basketball team pushed me down a flight of stairs at school, stabbed me in the behind with a number two lead pencil walking down the hallway, so there was, there was uh, bullying and that kind of thing happening, but I was a tall kid, so I, I was not someone that you would eagerly pick on. Uh, I, I, was, I was helped by my size. I, I didn't seem like uh, a shrinking violet. So, yeah, yeah, they, they found out. I, I think a lot of my deeply Christian friends uh, tried to convert me, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of course, and I was flattered. I was flattered that they cared so much yeah. about my soul that they didn't want yeah. me to go to hell. And they did it with love, and I never thought it was a pain that they did that. Even though, again, Jesse, the more they did it, the more I embraced my faith in my own little way. At, at this time, if we're talking about 6th grade, 7th grade, 8th grade, I didn't really know about the Talmud. I didn't really know... I, I, I'm sure I had read a lot of the stories from the Torah, but in terms of real Torah study, you know, that didn't happen till much later in my life. I, I totally understand that feeling of like, oh, wow, they care about me so much. They want to save my soul. Like, that's sweet. It's sweet in a weird way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Even though, like, it's, you know, it's, it's not that it's wrong, but like it, as an adult, you would feel very strange if someone tried to do that. But as a child, you're like, oh, they, you know, these are my friends. They care. This is what they this is what they believe, so they're they're trying that. 
And yes. luckily I never ran to Nazis or what sounds like the set of Man the High Castle, uh, like you did. But, <laughs> you know, a lot of the sort of uh, anti-Semitism I ran into was all ignorance-based, not like hatred-based. So I was answering a lot of basic questions. So I, I luckily didn't have to know like, you know, uh, Tal- Talmudic answers to things. I just sort of had to be like, no, I don't have horns. I don't have a tail. Um, I, I don't celebrate Christmas. I do celebrate Thanksgiving, which is always my favorite question. Like, do I celebrate Thanksgiving? I'm like, it's an American holiday. There's no <laughs> religious aspect to it. But I, I cared that they wanted to learn. So, yes. So uh, you are you are currently in Dallas right now, right? That is correct. You're in your like, do you feel do you, do you when you go back to Dallas, do you feel like you're going home or has it changed so much that or if you live so long in, uh, in California, that doesn't feel feel like feel like home to you both answers are true Uh, i've uh it has changed so much that none of the places that i remember as a child are still there and i feel like i'm at home my grandfather was one of the founders of the orthodox synagogue uh here in dallas to ferret israel and it is when i drive past to ferret israel there is the abraham tabalowski sanctuary So it gives me that little heartbeat. And this is the same place that my wife and I, when we were in Dallas once, I shocked uh, uh, my dad at the time saying, well, Ann and I are going to go to try to make a minion at at the the Orthodox Synagogue. Uh, Yesterday, I took a drive down memory lane. And I've got to tell you, it is just as potent a drive when everything is gone. When, when the places and people I knew from college are gone, and now there's malls and uh, uh, sushi restaurants that, that never existed before, I still see them in my mind, and I still see them in my heart. So they're still there. So it does still feel like home. Are you able to drive around Dallas and not really pay attention because your mind knows where it's going? So you can just sort of... You know, sort of, you know, breeze. It, it depends what streets I'm on. I, I do, uh, when I get around the university, SMU, I pretty much can drive without thinking about where I am because uh, it's a big box. Dallas is a big square. I think, it's, isn't Tulsa a big square too? Yes, yeah, everything's gridded. Every, everything yeah. has censored lights, which uh, I didn't realize was a thing cities didn't have until I moved up here uh, to Boston about 11 <laughs> years ago. And, ooh. Like pre GPS on phones, and it was a uh, it was a rough like first two years until like I finally asked for a GPS device for Hanukkah one year. I was like I, you know, I kept getting lost and having to call my sister who was living up here at the time, and just like describe where I was, and then she'd tell me. So, it's, uh, it's uh, not pleasant. But I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you, just riffing off what you were saying about being in Dallas and being at home. I drove yesterday past Temple Emmanuel, where I went to religious school forever and ever, you know, until I was in high school. And they built on it, and they've changed it. And I remember sitting underneath those trees when they were saplings and put in the ground out in their gardens. And now they're gigantic, gigantic trees, and it makes you feel old, and the place doesn't look the same. But I could see the same place I walked in those front doors when I came to kindergarten there when I was five years old. I, I could still see the doorway where where my past still existed. That's the uh, that's the interesting thing about the sort of the the religious spots of your youth, because like it's not something you can ever go back to. You, I I know you're speaking at Bnei Amuna, 
uh, tomorrow in Tulsa, and that's the conservative synagogue, and I went to the reform one, but they're very close to each other. But they've both sort of added on and upgraded since I've left, and I go back, and from the outside, parts of the building look right, and on the inside, part of the building looks right, but you can sort of see where new things are. But then, you know, th there'll be a small, like, alcove or, like, a picture, and you're like, yes, I remember that. That, that feels right. It's, uh, my wife and I, we did the opening show at the Los Angeles Theater Center. Uh, it was Chekhov's Three Sisters. It was a big gala event opening the downtown theater. It was this enormous complex. And uh, there were huge dressing rooms, and we had a custom in the dressing room, we signed the wall, and we each took a Sharpie and signed Stephen Tobolowsky and Tony Geary signed his name, and everybody who was in the Bill Pullman signed his name. Everybody, Cliff DeYoung, the wall was signed. Well, over the years, the uh, theater was sold by the city. Private ownership took it over. They divided it into many small theaters. They put up walls. They repainted. And I went back. Uh, must have been two or three years ago, and I went into the dressing room. And there are walls in the dressing room now, and it's all repainted. And all of our names were gone. And I went over to sit at the seat where I put on my makeup for Baron Tusenbach for Chekhov, and I looked at the wall, and there was S-T-E-P, like the beginning of a P, and it was still there before the new wall divide was set up. And my heart jumped. And that's the thing about the past. When, when you encounter something that you recognize as true from the past, and the same thing goes with things I learned at Sunday school, uh, Bible lessons, things like this, when I encounter them again and they become new, it, it has an additional power instead of a diminished power. I completely agree. So speaking of you and your wife, she was not she was not raised Jewish, but she uh, <laughs> uh, she um, uh, at least according to something I read, like c converted after your 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 mother passed away, and it, it was sort of a surprise to you. And I was wondering what it's like to view your view your faith through someone who's seeing it sort of new for the first time and relearning things that you might have forgotten. Like I've I've discovered this in my own life with my wife, where she would ask me questions I didn't know the answer to them, and I felt really bad. And then we sort of took a class together and sort of I sort of was relearning sort of the basis of Judaism that, you know, things that just become sort of background noise in your knowledge of your faith that you don't really think about as much. Like, you know, when songs repeat and why Jews do this versus that and like when we stand, when we sit, when we bow. And so I was wondering if you could talk about how it feels to see, you know, uh, your, your faith through the eyes of another. Well, I think, first of all, ditto to everything you said. Ditto. But uh, what, there's an old Jewish joke, never marry a shiksa. Mm -hmm. you, you know that joke? I do, I do. Yes, and I'm sure all the listeners know that joke, too. When Anne <laughs> became Jewish, besides, see, I had no idea, because I was working at the time, and she just asked me if she could take night classes. I didn't know if, you know, if she was taking leaf pressing or winemaking. I didn't know. She didn't really share with me what she was taking. And I was busy all the time, and I felt bad that I didn't ask more questions about what she was doing, that she was gone like two, three nights a week for a few months. 
And when she came down the stairs and said, Stephen, I'm becoming Jewish, I was flabbergasted. And I didn't expect it because when we married, you know, Anne was uh, Baptist and kind of uh, Episcopal witch of some sort. I don't know. She had a conglomeration of faiths mm-hmm. from her life in Georgia. And she's a very spiritual person. She's always been a very spiritual person. And I've always been the kind of person that thought someone's spiritual life is their business. It's, it's their personal journey. And so I didn't say anything. But when she said she was converting to Judaism, I was so moved emotionally. And I went and watched her. Uh, she was behind a curtain in the mikvah. And when she came up from the water and said the Shema, I mean, it could have been the end of Gone with the Wind. I was just in tears with a couple friends of ours and a rabbi friend. It it was so moving. And, of course, what happened was she said, listen, we're going to, you know, no more calamari, <laughs> no more shrimp cocktail. <laughs> you know, she was saying, if we're going to do this, we should kind of do this right now. What we do in our home is what is euphemistically known as kosher style, mm-hmm. because we never really had our home koshered by uh, uh, a rabbi, but we don't eat milk with meat. We don't eat kind of forbidden foods. Uh, we, we, we keep kosher style that way uh, whenever we can. We Now, this is something I, I put in, like give her a gold star for the good sport when she was still back in the days when she was an Episcopal Baptist witch, back in the older days, she would always, on Fridays, she would occasionally, I will say occasionally instead of always because it's a difficult chore, she would make challah for us. Wow. And she would light the candles. And she would say the prayers with us and the prayers for the wine. She would do that with us and for our boys. She did this to be a good sport. And and I at the same time let her put a Christmas tree in the house at Christmas time, in that it reminded me of my youth, when Mom wouldn't let us have the Christmas tree. Yet we went we couldn't have a Christmas tree in her house, but we did celebrate present giving on December 25th. And so it was a kind of a hodgepodge of of practices. But once she became Jewish. The hodgepodge kind of quit. Uh, we didn't really have Christmas trees in the house anymore. We 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 celebrate the Sabbath, and uh, we go to services whenever we can. Uh, my wife is a passionate learner, and so uh, we've been going to Hebrew, take Hebrew classes for seven, eight years now. We go to Torah and Talmud classes when they ever, whenever they offered them at our synagogue. And she's always there, and she's always learning. And so that's, I think that's one of the great things of Judaism, is that it advocates passionate learning. And so it's, it's right up her alley. Well, I was gonna, that, that, that was one of the questions I was going to ask, is because it's, when when I heard that she surprised you with it, I was like, that can't be like that can't be easy to do. Judaism is not something that you don't you don't get to you know be converted into it in a day. It, it, it requires a few months of, of learning and practice. Yes. And so like I was, I'm, I'm glad you told me the backstory because I was reading that. I was like, how is that even possible? 
and and you know I forget what show I was doing, but you know when you're an actor, you know I was gone a lot. I don't know if I was doing Deadwood or Heroes or, or something something to where I was gone a lot in the evening doing night shoots, and so she was just doing a class, and 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 she had no intention of converting. Her her intention was to learn, and then after my mother's death. Uh, Anne said, in her mind, and I, I think I have this right, is that she wanted to become Jewish because she felt it was a way that she could love, continue the love that my mother had and the way we loved her and the force of my mother's love in the world, which was quite palpable. And Anne felt that was something she desired. She wanted to continue that kind of love in the world. And so her desire to become Jewish was born of love and learning. In, in this book, you talk about the, um, your, your process of, of, of mourning the loss of your mom uh, yes. by, you know, by uh, going to you know, Minion every day and sort of the relationships that get built out of that. And I don't want to spoil that. I want to make people read that part yes. of your book because it's so incredible. But like, that's really... There's some there is something about that the the Hebrew prayer you know that that you say when you're mourning someone and how it doesn't talk about death and all uh, death at all and how yes. interesting that is philosophically because you're talking about you're talking about the greatness of God instead of, a, of of about one particular person and it sort of gives you the the space and freedom to think about that person's life and how uh, it's still affecting you now it like it instead of directing you it sort of opens up you know the thought process in a way I've always thought. It, it's shocking. It's shocking because when my mom died, one of the reasons I left the shul that really I came back to Judaism when I was in my 40s, that I rediscovered Judaism and rediscovered it with a passion, uh, was a little tiny conservative slash orthodox shul, Beth Meir, in Los Angeles, a little tiny little shoebox of a shul. And once my mom passed on, they didn't have morning and evening minions. So I had to go to the conservative shul that was nearby, Adat Ariel. And that is where I met Abe. And again, I agree with you. I'm not going to tell the story. No, it's... Because the story is too remarkable. But I, I just want to say this. Someone asked me, like, why should I read your book? Why should I read your book? And I said, well, first of all, it's amusing uh, it's entertaining. Uh, parts of it are scary. Parts of it are thought-provoking. But if for no other reason, you have to read the book because of my stories about Abe, the man that I met at Minion. Uh, it is a story that is unbelievable, and I, I don't want to say too much about it, but his history, we ended up with a uh, uh, two-year friendship through through Minion, in which I learned about his life, that was remarkable and life-changing. And I, I said, if for no other reason, you got to read the ape stories yeah. beca because they're too much. They, they really are. It was. I was thinking about uh, when, right after college, when I was living in Tulsa for a year before moving here, I used to exercise at the uh, Tulsa Jewish Community Center, and for my year or so of exercising there, I met a. Uh, an older gentleman named Sherman, who was also a Holocaust survivor. And 
like throughout the year of when we'd always meet because we'd always end up exercising at the same time he was in his 80s at this point already uh-huh. and this was like a decade ago and so you know he'd see me running what he would consider very fast and so like you know we would talk while he was lifting weights afterwards and like slowly learning about the fact that he was a holocaust survivor and then him talking about it and then talking about what he did afterwards it's really you know there's something weird like inspiring and sort of just wonderfully life-affirming about talking to talking with a holocaust survivor who's still an optimistic person after all they've all they've seen and all they've experienced and And, so and 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 when when somebody has dealt with something so horrific like abe was at auschwitz when 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 somebody has dealt with something so amazing Yes, just on the surface of it, it is inspiring. Just looking at it is is a story of life-affirming survival. But it creates metaphors beyond metaphors Mm -hmm. after that of, of man's inhumanity to man. What is a man? What is faith? What is the power of faith? Uh, What is the power of love? And, and where does it come from in a time of absolute darkness? And if you could take a look at Abe's story at a time of the most absolute darkness and see that what comes from that is brightness and love and life, it is shocking. And, and it is not just that it's a feel-good story, but it makes you reexamine the goodness of humanity which I got to say, you know, I've never been a big fan of. I've never been like one of the big uh, rah-rah, we love humanity. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, I'm unfortunately, I know too much history. But, yeah. but, the, but the Abe stories make you reconsider what is a man. I mean, it also made me reconsider what I thought of all of the Germans who were working at the camps. That was Absolutely. like, you know, again, not to spoil it, but there, there's a surprise there that I did not see coming. And, Abs- absolutely. And that was really incredible. Incredible. So one of the things, um, not that we're going to spoil other parts of the book, but I wanted to talk about, uh, <laughs> I wanted to talk about uh, your chapter on the Shema and how yes. your rabbi sort of told you how to take Judaism on the road. Yes. And the way this sort of fantastic way he sort of got you to sort of think about the small things that happened happen to you during the day and sort of yep. even more enjoy the small blessings we get throughout the day, right, by saying the Shema afterwards. And yeah. yeah, yeah, the 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 thing first of all, in general, one of the things I love about Judaism is that it's so absolutely direct directly connected to life. Is that you don't say a prayer like a blessing without performing an action afterwards, right? You say the blessing of the wine, you drink the wine. You say blessing for bread, you eat the bread. Blessings are attached to things. Uh, The one blessing that was never really attached to things for me was the central prayer of Judaism, the Shema. And when I was going to Canada, I didn't know what I was going to do uh, because also, you know, you work a lot of times on the Sabbath. You work on Friday and Saturday because that Saturday is when they're able to get into businesses that are normally closed and you're able to get different sets. So I was a little embarrassed to tell my new rabbi, the rabbi who brought me back to Judaism, that I you know, I was going to be gone for a few weeks and, and what could I do? And he said, uh, you know, you could take a prayer with you because a prayer is light. 
takes up no space. He says, the Shema, you say the Shema. And and I'm going to give the prescription because I think it helps people who hear it. I, I think because uh, uh, there are other delights in that story besides his prescription, which was utterly brilliant. He said, you know, as Jews, we should say the Shema twice a day. He said, do you do that? And I go, well, you know, <laughs> at services, at services I do, and when I think about it, I do. He says, okay, this is what I want you to do. For a week, first week, I want you to say the Shema twice a day. Right. And I get up to start to go. He goes, wait, 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 where are you going? I'm not finished with you yet. He says, the second week, besides saying it twice a day, I want you to add saying the Shema whenever something good happens to you, like a little way of saying thank you. I said, okay. And he says, now the third week you're away, I want you to add saying the Shema whenever you've avoided disaster or a catastrophe. And that should do it. I said, do what? He says, that's all you'll need to know how blessed you are. And I got to tell you, at the end of three weeks, I was saying the Shema like every five minutes, day and night, and, and the malaise that comes into people's minds and the, and the idea, oh, God, I have so much. And, and we get so negative. I don't know, Jesse, if you're familiar with John Gottman, the work of John Gottman. I am not. Uh, he did brilliant work on relationships. And uh, you can look it up on the Internet. It's mind-boggling. And what he said was, what the Gottman theory is that really the negative and the positive are not equal that the negative is five times stronger in our lives than the positive and it's a biological imperative because for cavemen it was far more important to know which berries were poisonous than which berries were tasty so when actually you when you say or do something that's negative in your life it takes five positive acts to counterbalance that with the Shema, with the Shema experiment, it didn't negate the negative, but it counterbalanced it. And I was able to see how many blessings I had in a day. And I got to tell you, we're talking deep into the double digits, maybe even triple digits. By the end, I mean, I was laughing so hard on the plane home from Canada at Rabbi Schimmel's brilliance of me saying the Shema when I was able to get the right dinner on the plane. That they hadn't run out of the noodles, you, you know, every little thing, every little thing became a blessing, and it changed the way I saw my life. There, there is a great story about uh, you trying to do laundry while you were in oh. Canada, which um, again won't spoil it. But man, that that is a, I mean, um, I I already knew uh, of your great storytelling ability. That story, the way like it sort of is slowly unfolded, great close pun there. Um, yep. was just so great. I mean, like, I can see it, and I've experienced things like that where people keep telling you something is close and it's not, and you keep walking, and then you just sort of lose it on someone who doesn't deserve it. And and then something something ra- randomly magical happens because of it. Yeah, and, and I don't want to spoil it, but I will say this. The point of my storytelling that maybe if people aren't familiar with me, what I do is I tell true stories from my life. And... Uh, the way this evolved, and I'll just say this, it's a long story, it's in the book, but I'll say it quickly because, again, I don't want to spoil it. I had a terrible accident in 2008, which I was almost killed. Doctor said I had a fatal injury. Obviously, I did not because I'm talking to you right now. Uh, but 
while I was recovering, there wasn't much I could do but think, what if what the doctor said was right and I really died on that mountain in Iceland? What would I want my boys to know about their dad? And so I began writing these true stories about what I wanted my kids to know, like first love, first heartbreak, uh, first lessons learned about my mother, about my father, all sorts of things, uh, showbiz, all sorts of stories, but they were true. That, those stories became my first book, The Dangerous Animals Club. And Simon & Schuster asked me to do it. They said that the spiritual element of my stories was having resonance, and could I continue doing those kind of true stories but connect everything with a, a spiritual thread? And that's what my adventures with God is. And that's why, you know, the story of the piano, as ridiculous as that story is, and, uh, uh, and about me doing the laundry in Canada, all that stuff, it is, uh, it's a true story, it's a ridiculous story, and it's a meaningful story. And, and I think when you tell true stories, people hear the truth in what you say, and then suddenly it becomes their story as well. That, that is very true. And people in Boston especially will appreciate that story because uh, street names here change constantly, <laughs> and street names get reused in different parts of town. And so when you're trying to find a place, you might actually be heading to the exact wrong place. So it, was, it, felt, it, felt, it hit very close to home for me. Well, we're almost running out of time, so I, okay. I, I really, I want to talk about the the fact when you grew up and you guys celebrate, you gave your gifts on Christmas Day, but you didn't yep. have a tree. You put your gifts under the dining room table. Yep. And I want to know if you've ever sort of, did you ask your parents why like that, how that became the compromise? It wasn't just like in a corner or like by a fireplace or. The uh, the the I asked my mother when I was little why we got the presents under the dining room table. And my mother did what most people do when they're using uh, conspiracy theories as their mode of reality is she bumped, the, bumped it up to a higher authority. She said, Steppy Doors, that's what she called me. Steppy Doors, I don't know why that happens. I wrote a letter to Santa Claus. I mentioned we didn't have a chimney, we didn't have a tree. He said he'd use the back door and put the presents under the dining room table. That's what Santa Claus said. Now, I, I don't know why. You'd have to talk to him about it. But I have to tell you this, Jesse. I just performed that story at a conference in Carmel, California this last week. I had one Jewish woman come up to me who grew up in Philadelphia, and she said they got their presents on Christmas Day, too, instead of on Hanukkah. And they got their presents, drum roll, under a six-foot stuffed giraffe. Oh. I'm going like, that takes the cake. Again, they couldn't have a Christmas tree, but they instead got a six-foot stuffed giraffe. Don't ask me why. Uh, one, one Jewish girl came up to me. I forget what city she was from. And she said, instead of, uh, instead of getting their presents under the tree, Santa left them in a greenhouse in the back amongst all of their plants. They grew up in the northeast and so to protect well i guess like boston and so they had a greenhouse and so santa left all the presents in the greenhouse so you, you know there are a lot of uh clever workarounds i don't know if clever is the right word but uh, when we when our kids grew up 
Ann and I, before Ann converted, we celebrated Hanukkah. We had the eight days of Hanukkah, and because Hanukkah is really about dedication uh, and about the, the idea of Hanukkah is about education, we would play a game every night where I would give them new Hanukkah facts every night before they got their Hanukkah gift. But they also got presents on Christmas Day, the, the same. And when they grew older, instead of getting presents on Christmas Day, uh, my eldest son, Robert, worked at the homeless shelter serving dinners on Christmas Day. So you see, it all worked out fine anyway. Well, I mean, I just realized I got uh, both uh, growing up and now uh, my sister who has kids when, when Hanukkah comes around, we, we both, uh, she and us growing up, put our presents by the fireplace. And now I'm thinking about it. I was like, why the fireplace? Like, we didn't believe in Santa Claus, but the fireplace seemed like the proper place to do it, right? It wasn't <laughs> on the table. It wasn't... It's logical. Yeah. It's, uh, it, those, those compromises, you know, and ideas come from really strange places where you're like, well, I don't know. Let's put it under the, let's put it under the table. Like, what else? Right? Where else can we put it? Um, yes. So that's, uh, there are so many delightful stories in this book. And so everyone listening should go buy it. And if you buy a ticket for the uh, Vilna Shul uh, talk with you on May 1st, you get a copy of the book. So double bonus there. That's a double bonus. And, and uh, come to the Vilna Shul. If, and if you heard this uh, podcast, certainly mention it to me when you bring the book up for me to sign, because I'll sign it for you. Because, uh, and, and Jesse, I want to thank you for uh, doing this, for uh, making it possible for me to speak to Boston audience before the show. Oh, no, th- thank you so much for you know, taking time. I mean, I know you're doing this from a hotel and you have a, you know, uh, a talk tonight and a talk tomorrow. If you have a chance when you're in Tulsa and you're at Baneamuna and it's, if it's nice out and you have like 20 minutes, there is a park like a block away called uh, Woodward Park. It's, it's uh-huh. gorgeous. It's one of those, it's where my father and I would walk uh, between, uh, between high holiday services. It's a gorgeous place. It's definitely a place where uh, Shema would be appropriate. So if, if you uh-huh. have a chance, check that out. Okay. And and hopefully I will see you on May first. So absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. You bet. Thank you, Jesse. All right. Have a good one. Bye bye. Bye. I hope you all enjoyed that amazing conversation. He is a great storyteller and an amazing person. And you should all go right now to jewishboston.com and buy tickets for his event on May 1st at the Vilna Shul. You can also get it uh, tickets on the thevilnashul.org. I want to thank CJP and jewishboston.com for allowing me to do this, as well as Sean Fogel for our amazing music. And please, I, I beg you, go to iTunes, subscribe, leave us a review. It would be a huge help. And we're also on the Google Play Store, we are on Stitcher, and of course on SoundCloud. So I hope you all enjoyed this conversation, and if you have any thoughts or suggestions, you can email us at podcast at jewishboston.com and again, when you go on May 1st and you get your book signed, let Stephen know that you heard about it on the podcast. That would make him very happy, and it would make me very happy. So I hope you all have a great day, and had I hope you all had a wonderful Passover as well, and uh, looking forward till May very soon. Bye, everybody. Shalom. Shalom.